break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 31st of January, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. We've got plenty for you here on the show. We're going to be talking about the first two executions in the United States this year. Happened late last week. We're going to talk about the ongoing slow grinding war in Syria. But before we get to either of those two very important issues, we want to talk about how U.S. rents are skyrocketing. Rents have been rising all across the United States. The Washington Post reports that average rents rose 14% last year to $1,877 a month, with cities like Austin, New York, and Miami notching increases of as much as 40%, according to real estate firm Redfin. When Americans expect rents will continue to rise by about 10% this year, according to a report released this month by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. At the same time, many local rent freezes and eviction moratoriums have already expired. As we reported to you last week, according to data from the Census Bureau, 8.4 million people said that they are, quote, not at all confident they can make the rent in February. Just about 11 million said they are only slightly confident they can make it work with their landlord. And 12 and a half million are, quote unquote, moderately confident about the same issue. So essentially, 32 million people in the U.S. are not 100 percent sure they can pay their rent next month. Evictions are also creeping back up all across the country, as researchers at Eviction Lab noted about the latter half of 2021. Between August 27th and November 26th, 11,799 eviction cases were filed in Las Vegas, about 126% of the historical average. Eviction filings exceeded 75% of the historical average in 11 cities, including Columbus, Tampa, Indianapolis, and Milwaukee. The Washington Post also reported that rent and housing costs are a big driver of inflation, noting, quote, housing costs make up a third of the U.S. Consumer Price Index, which is calculated based on the going rate of home rentals. But economists say there's a lag of nine to 12 months before rising rents show up in inflation measures. As a result, even if inflation were to subside for all other components of the Consumer Price Index, rising rents alone could keep inflation levels elevated through the year. And available rental assistance funding allocated by the government during the pandemic is drying up. It's about $12 billion left out of the $46 billion that was allocated during the pandemic. But demand seems to outstrip what's there. New York, Texas, and California alone appear to need anywhere from 6 to $10 billion based on the applications that they have on file. The current situation of high rents predates the pandemic, of course, whose economic hardships have only compounded it. As the Post also noted, quote, 11 million households or one in four renters spend more than half of their monthly income on rent, according to an analysis of 2018 census data by Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, though experts say that figure is likely even higher now, end quote. It certainly does seem likely that it is higher, as Census Bureau statistics detail that 30.8 million people 
told the Census Bureau that in the seven days prior to answering the survey in which they responded, they found it, quote unquote, very difficult to pay for their usual household expenses. The Wall Street Journal reported last week that while wages rose 4.7% in the fourth quarter of 2021, inflation rose 4.9%, just further stressing the challenges people are continuing to have making ends meet. And of course, all of this in the context of rising rents. But despite all of this, there's no significant aid on the horizon, at least not from the federal government, it seems, leaving tens of millions to wonder whether they will have a roof over their heads or food to eat in the coming months. Syrian government sources this morning reported that their air defenses had shot down a raft of Israeli missiles fired at targets near the capital of Damascus. Also reporting that some, however, got through and caused material damage. Some sources have claimed Israeli missiles were targeting sites linked to the Lebanese resistance group Hezbollah, something that remains unconfirmed. And this adds to the hundreds of air and missile strikes Israel has conducted in Syria over the past decade, where, in fact, these have actually become a regular occurrence. While Israel is often not mentioned as part of the war in Syria, they've been aiding the Western and Gulf-led regime change efforts, using their air and artillery power to attempt to degrade the fighting capability of the Syrian government and its allies from Iraq, Iran, and Lebanon, which, at least indirectly, aids forces linked to al-Qaeda and ISIS. The attack follows on two attacks in December on Syria's main port, a move that can only cause hardship in a country where, because of war and sanctions, the humanitarian situation has become quite difficult. These events draw attention to the fact the war in Syria, while considered a quote-unquote frozen conflict, is in fact still active, just in a slow, grinding manner, and the desire of the United States and its allies to admit the defeat of their regime change efforts continues to stand in the way of any real resolution. A key example of that is the ongoing fighting taking place in Hasaka in northeast Syria, in areas controlled by the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, with the backing of the United States military and all of its military power. A week ago, ISIS attacked a large SDF-run prison that housed thousands of ISIS prisoners, one in a string of makeshift jails holding ISIS prisoners and their families, running into the tens of thousands of detainees. And in this particular fighting here, ISIS attacked the prison, seized the prison, and then essentially held it as a redoubt, and they're trying to retake it. Over 200 have died in the fighting. It's extended to the surrounding neighborhoods and drawn in U.S. airstrikes and armored support. As of Saturday, roughly 60 ISIS fighters were said to be holding out in parts of the prison. Attacks like this have been discussed as a potential threat for some time now as the remnants of ISIS seek to regroup. However, the fractured nature of control over Syrian territory has only provided more space for ISIS to gain a respite and plan larger attacks. After U.S.-led regime change efforts to topple the Syrian government essentially failed, the U.S. engineered an alliance with the Kurdish-led SDF, who have deep roots in northeast Syria, in order to maintain a foothold in the country, a military foothold for the U.S. They have also been generally supportive of the Turkish invasion of northern Syria, where they've set up a so-called buffer zone along the border between those two countries and set up their clients as a puppet government. U.S. policy is predicated on avoiding a total loss at all costs. They know if they pull out, the most likely scenario is a deal between the SDF and the Syrian government, and that, without the Turkish occupation, the last enclave of al-Qaeda-linked fighters in Syria and Idlib would also probably fall. This would mean a reunited Syria and the strengthening of the broader axis of countries who are resisting the U.S.-Israeli Gulf vision for the future of the region. So Western strategy prefers to keep the country fractured, its people in poverty, and the government under sanctions. It makes things terrible for Syrians but it does make sure that U.S. hegemony is secure. It means the conflict really has taken on a slower, more grinding character, but that it never fully ends, 
and that all sorts of potential landmines like the ISIS prison attack remain as major flashpoints with the potential for major damage. This is the reality of U.S. foreign policy, maintaining U.S. control over geopolitical events and circumstances, no matter the human cost. Matthew Reeves and Donald Grant were executed late last week by the states of Alabama and Oklahoma, respectively, in the first two executions of 2022 that were widely criticized as going against at least the spirit of restrictions on executing the intellectually disabled and seriously ill. Grant's execution was first and was conducted with a lethal injection cocktail involving a combination of drugs that may soon be declared unconstitutional for representing cruel and unusual punishment because of the involvement of midazolam a drug that is said to be, quote, the chemical equivalent of a burning at the stake. Grant's lawyers had sought to have his execution stayed on the grounds that the trial that the drug cocktail, being constitutional or not, should play out, but the Supreme Court denied that appeal. His lawyers also sought a commutation from the state of Oklahoma because Grant suffers from schizophrenia and brain damage that they argued conflicts with practice in place since the Supreme Court case in 2002 against executing those with serious mental illnesses or brain damage, which was also the issue in Reese's case as well. The Supreme Court denied a last-second attempt to halt the execution due to his attorney's argument it was unconstitutional. As mentioned, since 2002, U.S. jurisprudence has stated that those with quote-unquote intellectual disabilities should not be executed. But what exactly that means has never been exactly clear, and every year a number of cases emerge that test the boundaries. Despite a lower court ruling that seemed to confirm that Reeves was on solid ground challenging his execution on the grounds of intellectual disability, the Supreme Court ruled five to four against him and he was executed, also by lethal injection. Although Reeves had stated, but had not filled out the proper forms, that he preferred the untried method of nitrogen asphyxiation that Alabama and three other states have recently allowed, but yet to develop the exact method for. These first two executions of 2022 reflect the reality of the death penalty in the U.S. today. As the Death Penalty Information Center puts it, it's a struggle between, quote, two competing forces, the continuing long-term erosion of capital punishment across most of the country, and extreme conduct by a dwindling number of outlier jurisdictions to continue to pursue death sentences and executions, end quote. The Death Penalty Information Center notes further that, quote, 2021 saw historic lows in executions and near historic lows in new death sentences. 18 people were sentenced to death, tying 2020's number for the fewest in the modern era of the death penalty dating back to 1972. The 11 executions carried out during the year were the fewest since 1988. The numbers mark the seventh consecutive year of fewer than 50 death sentences and fewer than 30 executions. Both measures pointed to a death penalty that was geographically isolated, with just three states, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Texas, accounting for a majority of both death sentences and executions. And they go on to note additionally that, quote, the few jurisdictions that scheduled or carried out executions and imposed new death sentences pursued the death penalty with apparent disregard for due process, judicial review of execution methods, or potentially meritorious claims of intellectual disability, incompetence to be executed, and innocence. Oklahoma botched the execution of John Grant, then denied the execution had been problematic. Arizona authorized executions with the same lethal gas the Nazis had used to murder more than a million people in their World War II death camps. South Carolina moved to adopt the electric chair as its default execution method with the firing squad as a quote-unquote humane alternative. So, as we enter 2022, the U.S. is using the death penalty less, that's for sure, but it's also using it more brutally. 
that's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 